Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. Welcome and thanks for joining me today with this Supreme Court update that we have for you. I'm calling it the Coniglia Conundrum, with the long-awaited decision in the Coniglia versus Strom case. And it um, it's created some issues. It's actually left more questions unanswered than it has answered. And we've been waiting for this. I first uh, analyzed this back in April of 2020, in the, right in the middle of the, the pandemic. And we uh, talked about it, talked about the community caretaking exception, and then I fully explained the exception, went into a historical development of it. If you haven't listened to that podcast on Broadcast Blue, you can go to broadcast.blue or uh, sign up for it on uh, iTunes or Google Play as a podcast, and you can go back and listen to uh, how I analyzed the First Circuit's decision back then. I really enjoyed enjoyed reading it, especially because it's from decision that was written by one of my favorite uh, uh, circuit court judges, uh, Judge Brucellia, and the, always fun to read his decisions and have a dictionary handy because he's going to use some some terms and some words that you're going to have to check yourself on. But uh, we, we've been waiting for this. We knew this was coming. It, some folks are acting like this was a big surprise. And some, there's a few podcasts and YouTube videos I've watched that came out uh, kind of right after the decision. Everyone out at the starting gate, boom, let's see what we can get out there and, uh, and grab some attention um, for ourselves there. I, I took a little bit of time to digest the decision and also took the time to, to speak to some other folks about it. Uh, talk to some other uh, attorneys and uh, some constitutional scholars and uh, uh, some police legal advisors even trying to you know make sure that we're on board with this and uh, see exactly what this the proposition that this case stands for and 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 more importantly what it doesn't stand for so we're going to take a few minutes to look into that and we're going to analyze it and um, I'm going to share a perspective with you and see what you think the full name of the decision Coniglia versus Strom it's a Supreme Court decision it was decided on May 17th of 2021. Let's take a look at the facts. Here are the facts of this case as the Supreme Court announced in their syllabus. During an argument with his wife, uh, Edward Coniglia placed a handgun on a dining room table and asked his wife to, quote, shoot him and get it over with. Instead of doing that, his wife left the home and spent the night at a hotel. And the next morning, she tried to call him on the telephone, but she was unable to reach him by phone. And so she called the police, uh, concerned about him, uh, based on what had happened the night before. She called the police and asked him to do a welfare check. And the officers responded uh, along with her, along with Coniglia's wife, to the home. And when they got there, uh, they encountered Coniglia, and he's sitting on the front porch. And the officers called an ambulance uh, based on their belief that Coniglia posed a risk to himself or to others. Coniglia agreed to go to the hospital for a psychiatric evaluation on the condition that the officers not confiscate his firearms. So it was, he made it very clear that he didn't want his firearms uh, confiscated. But once, but once he left, uh, the officers located and seized these, uh, these wa- uh, weapons, his firearms. Coniglia then sued uh, to get him back. The police refused to give him back initially. It took him a long time to get him back. But uh, Coniglia sued um, the officers in a 1983 action, uh, claiming that they had entered his home and seized his firearms without a warrant in violation of his Fourth Amendment rights. So those are the fundamental facts that we have going on here. 
at the circuit court of appeals level, the first circuit uh, joined several other circuits in extrapolating the community caretaking exception from the Katie versus Dombrowski decision and applied it to a dwelling. A court noted that threats to individual and community safety are not confined to the highways. And so under this, this safety uh, umbrella, um, the court extended the uh, the decision, the exception from Katie, which was geared to automobiles. Remember in the Katie decision where they, they did a impounded a vehicle belonging to a police officer. Uh, they impounded the vehicle and uh, and then went into the trunk to look for a firearm since, since police officers back then usually had firearms that they carried with them in their personal vehicles. And they inventoried the car. They went in and searched the car uh, looking for that. So that's the whole concept of the community caretaking function. Um, and it dealt with just automobiles. Katie was, uh, the Katie case itself was, they were looking for a weapon, uh, just like they were in this case, but it was directly uh, limited uh, to automobiles. Well, the First Circuit extrapolated upon that and said, hey, we're going to apply this to dwellings as well, noting that, you know, the, the threats to safety weren't just confined to the highways. And so that's basically what we're dealing with in this case. So the issue on appeal in front of the Supreme Court is pretty much uh, straightforward. In fact, it, this is, as Justice Thomas announced, the question today is whether Katie's acknowledgement of these caretaking duties creates a standalone doctrine that justifies warrantless searches and seizures in the home. So in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court held that the community caretaking exception that we have from Katie versus Dombrowski as applied to automobiles does not apply for the warrantless searches and seizures inside of dwellings. The court noted, and this is a quote, what is reasonable for vehicles is different from what is reasonable for homes. Katie acknowledged as much, and this court has repeatedly declined to expand the scope of exceptions to the warrant requirement to permit warrantless entry into the home. And they're referring to the Collins decision there. We thus vacate the judgment below and remand for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. And so the court is just emphatically stating that the community caretaking doctrine does not apply to the homes. And, you know, the, in citing they, oh, the court also cited the Jardines decision. Just a quick little reminder, if you don't re recall the, what happened in Jardines or what happened in Collins. The Jardines decision from back in 2013 was a year after United States versus Jones. And, you know, Jones involved the, the physical intrusion of an automobile, one of the, what Justice Scalia referred to as one of the four enumerated areas of protection in the Fourth Amendment. And, and the court said in Jardines that you can't do that, right? The, and it dealt with the curtilage of the home. The curtilage is that area around the home that uh, that is treated as if you're inside the home itself and the and that the home is a protected place and it's and of the four enumerated areas the they've often referred to dwellings uh, you know the the four specific areas of protection in the 4th amendment are persons houses papers and effects and and houses are dwellings is where there where people live and in many, many decisions, the Supreme Court has said that the, the, the home is the chief among equals. It is a, this, the place of particular importance and, and particular protection when it comes to the Fourth Amendment. In fact, in the Collins decision, um, Justice, uh, in the oral arguments, Justice Kagan um, referred to um, 
and referring to Jardines uh, in the Collins uh, oral arguments, basically said, you know, we've held that the, the homes or a person's home is sacrosanct. Using using that that strong of language, you know, sacrosanct with regard to the protection that's given to the dwelling. So, um, this given Jardines and given Collins, uh, this this decision certainly isn't um, a, a huge surprise, um, and they they really mean that when they say that the the dwellings are sacrosanct. Uh, they genuinely mean that. And they're not going to allow for some broad category that might be applicable to an automobile to also um, include. Um, the home. And we saw it in Collins um, and refusing to extend the automobile exception into the cartilage of the dwelling. And we see it here again in this case. Justice Thomas mentioned exigent circumstances and talked about uh, the possibility of exigent circumstances gaining a warrantless entry of to into the home and nevertheless reasonable under the fourth amendment through some type of exigent circumstances and he and he w- went through the little litany now it's important to note that that wasn't on appeal here um there the government never argued that there were exigent circumstances so they stood alone on the community caretaking doctrine if the community caretaking doctrine did not apply to dwellings which the court held that it didn't then it was a, a total bust for them there was uh, there was no there was never an argument made that exigent circumstances applied but justice roberts um had a, a very short concurring addition to Justice Thomas's um, majority uh, opinion and that that's because Justice Thomas didn't mention um, he mentioned it by name but he didn't cite the a case support um, for the emergency exigency he 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 mentioned the Kentucky versus King case, which is the one of our, you know, the pinnacle, the what I call the blue key case for the destruction of evidence exigency. But he didn't mention the Michigan v. Fisher decision, which is uh, from 2009, which was the Supreme Court decision that dealt with the, the warrantless entry into the home on the on the objectively reasonable basis, believing that medical assistance was needed or persons were in danger. And that's the fundamental uh, concept of the emergency doctrine. And um, unlike the destruction of evidence exigency, which requires probable cause, right, um, that's that's an exception to the warrant requirement, but not the probable cause requirement. The emergency exigency isn't based on the probable cause of criminal activity. It, it, it is more akin to the concept of someone needing assistance, uh, kind of like the, the, the argument that was being made here um, in in this particular decision. And so uh, Justice Roberts basically uh, provided a very uh, short concurring opinion in which Justice Breyer joined, just acknowledging that um, that the, the Michigan v. Fisher decision and the whole concept of the emergency aid exception or that type of exigent circumstances. Um, and it's also important to, to point out, if you listen to, I believe it was nearly an hour and a half, they, they had extended oral arguments on this decision. And if you go to the OES website and listen to the oral arguments, you can learn a lot just from listening to the arguments that are made. Justice Roberts um, was very, very concerned about elderly people about trying to assist elderly people if there was some type of report that an elderly person wasn't answering the phone and had somehow missed out on their routine and if you listen to question after question after question of justice roberts it was clear 
that he was very concerned about this um, particular type of scenario. Ironically, he didn't he didn't mention it in his concurring opinion. Um, not not to worry, uh, both uh, Justice Alito and uh, to even greater extent Justice Kavanaugh and their concurring opinions jumped all over and specifically referred to the Chief Justice's concerns. Um, as expressed in his questioning in the oral arguments, but for for his uh, for his part, uh, Justice Roberts just wanted to add to what uh, Justice Thomas said by making reference specifically to Michigan v. Fisher, um, which was something that Justice Thomas didn't do in his concurring opinion, and so um, that that was the extent of Justice uh, Roberts' concurring opinion here. The decision in Canicoli is pretty straightforward, and it just basically stands for the proposition that the community caretaking doctrine does not apply to a dwelling. And um, that's pretty straightforward, right? So you think, well, uh, what's the big deal with this? Well, the big deal is the conundrum um, that's, that is created um, with questions that are re- related. I mean, we've relied upon the concept of the community caretaking function for um, – issues such as welfare checks and as the basis of some of our statutory protection um, regarding uh, red flag laws. And so the, the conundrum is, what does the Coniglia decision mean uh, for welfare checks? And what does it mean for red flag laws? Now, neither one of these were addressed in the majority opinion, um, but they were addressed in a couple of the concurring opinions, one by Justice Alito and one um, by Justice Kavanaugh. So let's take a look at these concurring opinions to see what they say about these two uh, particular uh, situations, you know, what they basically, what they say about this Coniglia conundrum. Now, it's important, before I, before I jump to them, I want to, I want to point out that this is dicta. They're concurring opinions. They weren't a part of the majority opinion, and so they don't carry, uh, they don't have you know, the, the value of precedence, and stare decisis isn't going to be uh, applicable. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to hang your hat on these concurring opinions, but they do at least let us know what two of the nine justices think about the conundrum and 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 their at least recommendations um, for uh, how they would address these situations. Let's take a look at each of these two questions in turn. Well, the first question, what does this mean for welfare checks? We're going to look at both Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinions for just a little bit of guidance and what their thoughts are. And um, both both of these justices recognize the chief justice's uh, concerns. Um, they're basically referring to what I talked about earlier, the question, the, the questions uh, and the specific scenario that the chief justice uh, asked about in the oral arguments went into great depth and great concerns about um, with respect to welfare checks on folks. And, um, and here's some quotes from Justice Alito. He said, the Chief Justice's question concerns an important real-world problem. Today, more than ever, many people, including many, many elderly persons, live alone. Um, and so the, he's recognizing, you know, what do we do in a situation if the, if the community caretaking doctrine is not applicable um, then what do we do um, when we have these situations where we have people that are living alone? Maybe you have an elderly person that doesn't come to the door um, 
uh, or answer the phone when called, or you know, they don't drive, or their car's in the driveway. Um, there's no indication that they've gone anywhere. You don't expect them to have gone anywhere. And the loved ones or neighbors are concerned that no one's heard from this person, this elderly person that lives alone. If if you, you know, what about that? What about that um, type of, of situation? But then he recognized the question, um, but then he, he said, uh, and in part of his concurring opinion, he said, searches and seizures conducted for other non-law enforcement purposes may arise and may present their own Fourth Amendment issues, but today's decision does not settle those questions. And so he, he recognizes that this is a problem, that this is going to create um, uh, down the road. We're going to have, it might be back in front of the court, the searches and seizures for non-law enforcement purposes. Um, but um, he's acknowledging that the decision um, wasn't, uh, that today's decision didn't settle those questions. And again, it was very limited. The issue on appeal was just basically whether the community caretaking doctrine applied to the dwelling, and it didn't go into any other type of permissible warrantless entry into the home. Justice Kavanaugh went a step further in his concurring opinion, and when he talked about what does this mean for welfare checks, well, uh, this is a quote from his, his concurring opinion. This Fourth Amendment issue is more labeling than substance. The court's Fourth Amendment case law already recognizes the exigent circumstances doctrine which allows an officer to enter a home without a warrant if the exigencies of the situation make the needs of law enforcement so compelling that the warrantless search is objectively reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. He went on and in dicta, he actually provided two examples, one regarding someone who um, was mentally ill and suicidal, uh, a 911 call for a suicidal mentally ill person. And also he provided another example of an elderly person with no contact or unable to reach him on the phone or answer the door. And his questions, you know, he would rhetorically ask a question and then answer it. Um, he, you know, can an officer go in in this situation? And then he would say uh, flat out, yes, he can. Um, so Justice Kavanaugh would apply, clearly, he would apply the emergency um, aid exigent circumstances exception to those two types of situations and potentially others. Um, so he's, he was fully prepared um, to uh, let everyone know that if, if there was a case in front of the court involving warrantless entry based on those types of examples, he would certainly be willing to apply um, the emergency uh, aid exigent circumstance exception to those two types of circumstances and possibly others. So he, he took it a step further um, in his concurring opinion. So this gets us to then the second question and kind of saving the more interesting one, I guess, or the one that a lot of uh, folks in the police community and police legal advisors are really worried about. Um, what does this mean for red flag laws? And what is this, what's this going to do um, you know, for the, all of these uh, so-called red flag laws? Uh, and there are different uh, states that have different uh, statutory provisions. My home state of Florida um, has such a law. There are other states that have them as well. Um, and Justice Alito was the only one who mentioned them or addressed them in any, um, in any way of substance in, the, in his concurring opinion. And again, it's a concurring opinion. Um, and it doesn't really provide us anything, but it does point out uh, uh, kind of states what we already know uh, from this decision. And um, and he fully acknowledges that these provisions of red flag laws may be challenged under the Fourth Amendment. And those cases 
uh, may come before us, but our decision today does not address those issues. And so they're, it's kind of out there. What are we going to do about what's going to become of these red flag statutes that, and they vary greatly from state to state as to what's required and how they have to go about it. But basically um, where the, um, the statutory, you have these um, risk protection orders where, uh, where the law enforcement officers are able to go in and, and seize firearms from an individual because they present a, th- a threat to the community there's a risk that their possession of the firearms creates and it mostly deals with folks who are um, are mentally ill and and it's a it's a quagmire and we're certainly going to have this come up it's certainly going to be a case you're certainly going to have an issue where there's an rpo um, issued and someone's firearms are taken away and then um, we're going to end up uh, with second and fourth amendment challenges to not just the confiscation, but uh, the statute that allow that calls for it, um, which is which is the red flag law itself, and so we can fully expect to see that. There's there's no answer uh, to that that question um, in this particular um, case. All this case makes it clear is that to the extent that the red flag laws were based on the notion of the community caretaking doctrine um, being applicable to a dwelling, then there are going to be issues with that. And so uh, that's something that we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. And, and surely it won't take long uh, before we have some cases up in front of uh, the circuit courts of appeal. And, and I, I'm fully guessing in, in, in front of the Supreme Court uh, before too long regarding uh, these, these scenarios and these red flag laws. So now we get to the, the money slide. We get to the, the most important part. And what is the takeaway, you know, Specifically, what are our takeaways from this decision and how can we use this decision? What do we have to, to know about this decision and how is it going to impact us in law enforcement? Well, first um, the, and most importantly, I want to point out that the court has the court stated it in Jardines, it stated it in Collins, and it's making it clear again um, in the Canigli decision that dwellings are truly sacrosanct. The the, the dwellings, the protection of dwellings, the chief among equals of the protected areas of the Constitution, um, the, the, you, they're going to give that extra bit of scrutiny and they're going to that extra bit of protection um, to dwellings. Uh, they've been very consistent in that regard, and, um, and I think we, uh, there's no reason to expect anything different in the future, and dwellings are truly sacrosanct. The, uh, the next uh, takeaway that we have um, – the single most uh, significant part of the decision is the community caretaking doctrine does not apply to dwellings, period. And I'll just leave it at that. That make it any more clear. It can't be made any more clear than that. Uh, what about what about emergency welfare checks? Uh, what about our these welfare checks that we do for folks? Um, if we don't rely on the community caretaking doctrine, what do we re- rely on? I think you follow the roadmap. You follow. Um, you follow the roadmap that the Chief Justice kind of uh, articulated the concern in the oral arguments. Both Justices Alito and uh, Kavanaugh uh, d- directly addressed the concern and said, hey, look, look to the emergency aid exception or the emergency exigent circumstances exception, you know, whatever uh, you want to call it. Uh, the emergency exigency is what I typically refer to it as when I'm teaching my folks. Um, and, and if you look at the Michigan v. Fisher case, um, the standard, I think, the, to quote the court in that de- decision, it's just not that high. We're not talking about 
probable cause of criminal activity for the emergency aid exception. We're just talking about a reasonable belief that there's someone in need of aid inside of that dwelling. Um, and the key to this is art- articulated articulation, right? Develop the facts that you can articulate. Listen, get, listen to what the chief just listen to the hypotheticals that the chief justice put out in the oral arguments. I mean, it's a, it's an hour and a half long, the oral arguments for uh, this particular case on OES, um, OYEZ.com. But if you go, if you have the time driving somewhere someday, just to listen to what the, 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 the hypothetical scenarios that the chief justice posited or read the hypotheticals that uh, justice Kavanaugh uh, put forward in his concurring opinion, you'll see that you can articulate the facts. If a, if a neighbor calls and says, I haven't seen Ms. Smith in two days, um, is that enough for you to go kick the front door down? No, it's not. But keep adding facts. What are you going to do? You're going to knock on the door. You're going to get more facts. Do you typically see her? Does she typically go anywhere? Is, is there a place? Does she have a routine that she's not following? Um, what is the basis of your concern? And and be able to articulate the facts. And again, going back to Michigan v. Fisher, it the the it's just a reasonable belief that there's someone that needs help inside, and the threshold just is not that high just articulate the facts um and for a a lot of these emergency welfare checks if they're truly an emergency um then you're going to be able to use the emergency aid uh, exception the emergency exigency um, exception Um, and so but you're going to have to it's going to have to truly fit that uh fit the exception and it's going to require more than just a a report you're going to be it's going to require a little bit of effort um, additional facts that you can articulate that lead to that reasonable belief that there's an emergent an emergency in there and what does this mean lastly what does this mean for red flag laws we don't know i mean it's you're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to hang their hat to the extent that red flag laws were based on the presumption that the community caretaking doctrine would apply to dwellings well that presumption is is gone it's clear that that's not the case. And so um, the red flag laws are going to, we're going to have to look at them and see if what the basis is for, for these red flag laws. It might be that the court has to create a different exception um, for the red flag laws, or it may not. Uh, it might shoot them down altogether. Um, we have to wait and see what's going to happen. Anyone tries to, anyone's going to try and predict these, these laws are so different and so varied from state to state. Anyone that's providing you a blanket prediction that all red flag laws will disappear. Um, well, that's a little, uh, a little grandiose and, um, um, and I'm not going to go that far, but I, there is a problem to the extent the red flag laws rely on the community caretaking doctrine, um, for validity, then there's going to be a problem. And um, we're going to have to wait and see how that pans out. And um, and surely it will in the not-too-distant future. Well, that's it for this Supreme Court update. We've got another Supreme Court decision pending regarding the hot pursuit doctrine. Um, I can't wait for that decision to come out. It's going to rectify the differences we have among the circuits on what's actually required for the hot pursuit exigency that, that one's probably next on the radar, and, and we'll certainly have an update for you as soon as that comes out. But I want to thank you for joining me for this uh, special edition of the Supreme Court update. And from the folks here at LEO One, uh, we want to let you know that 
we're back in business. We're out doing live training again. If you uh, have any training needs for the legal aspects of law enforcement, we would be absolutely delighted to either do that at your facility, do it online for you. Um, and we're even working on on-demand courses. Have three um, very uh, popular courses right now that we're we're going to do a total on demand, um, and we're going to have state specific versions of them on demand. I mean, all this stuff, you know, webinars are great um, for information sharing if you've got the time to sit somewhere. But uh, the on demand training, we all know that's where the future's at, and and we're leading that. Leah one's lead. Uh, we're taking the lead on this uh, on demand online training. I also want to specifically uh, invite you for police legal advisors that are listening to this podcast. We are doing a, the, a new iteration of the Police Legal Advisor Training Program, PLATP. It's going to be uh, August, this coming up this August in Cocoa Beach, Florida at the Cocoa Beach Hilton Oceanfront from August 3rd to August 6th. That's a Tuesday through a Friday. Four full days, 32 hours of instruction, including four hours of ethics for um, the folks that need that for CLE or applying for CLE certification in Florida and Kansas. And we would be happy to apply for CLE certification in your state if you would uh, like to join us. Seating's limited. We just recently announced it and we have sold approximately a quarter of this available seating already. If you go to the LEA1 website at www.lea.one, uh, you can get more information about the Police Legal Advisor Training Program that's going to be this August, and we hope you can uh, join us for that. Until next time, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast, and thank you so much for what, what you do, um, and we hope to see you again real soon on another episode here with Broadcast Blue and LEA1. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.